It was, it was ancient wonders of the world where people would come from all over the Mediterranean world to see this astounding temple where Artemis, Diana, was worshipped. The Ephesians were also captivated by what they thought of as magic. Magic is harnessing some other power to do your will. It, it's trying to seek out some usually invisible spiritual power to have influence either to give you strength or oftentimes to have influence o- o- over other people. And Ephesus was a, was a famous hub for this. In fact, there were, there were Olympian, Olympic athletes that would travel to Ephesus to buy magic charms that they would wear in Olympic events. And the idea was, if I wear this magic charm, which was usually a box or a stone with some words on it, magical words, then it would give them an edge. They were looking for power. And so what Paul the Apostle does in writing to the Christians in Ephesus, he reveals to them real power. Power that is not in the Greek gods, not in the magic in Ephesus, but the power of the one true and living God expressed in and through Jesus Christ. And his prayer for these believers is that they'll know this. Keep in mind, this is a prayer here. The the reality is Christians have these realities from God. This prayer is about that our eyes as believers would be open to recognize it. You can see it there in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. That's the heart of this prayer. For Christians to know some things, look at it, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We talked about that last week. This week we're going to talk about the next thing he wants Christians to know, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Look at those descriptions the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. That'll change the way you live. It should. If you recognize the immeasurable power of God toward you. And the prayer here is that Christians would know that. And notice, this power toward us believers, look at it. It's according to the working of his great might. You see that little phrase? In the original language, there's three different words here that relate to the strength of God. God is full of energy. He is full of strength, and he is full of might. And this might, this strength, this energy of God is operative. It is at work in the life of the believer, and the prayer here is that we'll know that, and we'll see that, and then thus our lives will be changed by that. But essentially what he does here is he compares the power at work in you, the power at work in us believers, to four different ways God demonstrates his power in Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is about. To the best of my ability, that's what the sermon's going to be about. Four different ways God demonstrates his power toward us in and through Jesus Christ. Paul's heart is that we would know this. Look at verse 20. That he worked, this is according to the great working of his power, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So the first working of God that he would have us to know is to know God's power in raising Jesus from the dead. To know God's power in raising Jesus from the dead. This is the kind of power that is at work in you and that God has toward you. You think about to to be raised from the dead requires divine power. This This is not something you or I can do. 
This is something only God can do. God demonstrates his power to the world. In fact, God proves his power to the world by raising his son from the dead. It's one of the reasons I'm a Christian, because I believe God raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus, a man who proved himself to be God's son by many powerful and mighty acts, was raised from the dead to demonstrate his power and his identity. And the point here is, that kind of power is at work in your life. And the hope is, as a Christian, the prayer is that you'll know that. One of the promises Jesus makes in John chapter 6, in 647, truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. The person who believes in Jesus has eternal life. Look there in verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? This power isn't toward everyone. This power is toward those who believe. So that's always the pressing question, do you believe? Do you trust Jesus alone? Are you depending on Jesus to bring you to God? Are you living for him because you believe and trust in him? This power is ours. And first of all, it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Look at the next demonstration of God's power in and through Christ. Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is what God's power did. Not only raised Jesus, that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also exalted Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So not only does he want us to know the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, but also the power of God that exalted Jesus Christ over all. And here in this passage, you have a statement, a comprehensive statement of the power and exaltation of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Notice first, he's seated. God seated him at his right hand. That Jesus being seated means that his work is complete. His work of atonement, his work of laying down his life for our sins is complete. Nothing to be added to it. Nothing can be added to it. Once for all, he died for sins. Completed work. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. And the place of the right hand is a place of prominence. In the ancient world, it would usually be the prince that would sit at the right hand of the king. And the idea there was, this is the heir of all the power in the kingdom. All judgment is committed unto the son. That the, the son is the ex executor of the, the king's power and rule. He's the mediator of that power and rule. He's the king, and he's at the right hand of God. More so about Jesus Christ, this fulfills the Old Testament. You know, the New Testament, one of the things you find in your New Testament is over and over again, it refers to the Old Testament to demonstrate and prove who Jesus is. At, at heart in the, the work of the authors of the New Testament is this desire to show Christians this is in fulfillment of what God has been saying he would do for millennia. This is actually a quotation of Psalm 110. And if you look at your New Testament, the most quoted verse in your New Testament is Psalm 110. The apostles refer to this verse more than any other. And look what it says, Psalm 110. You may have to turn there if you don't have it memorized. I'm going to turn there because I don't know verse 2. I hear some other people turning there as well. Psalm 110. 
a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Whenever Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees, in the last week of his life, he's in Jerusalem, and they challenge him, Jesus points them to this verse. He points them to this passage and asks them about this. How can David talk about the Lord and another Lord? David the king speaking about the Lord God, and then there's another Lord. And guess who that other Lord is? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what God says of him in Psalm 2? Your mighty scepter will rule in the midst of your enemies. But it's what God says of this Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's what God has done in and through and for Jesus Christ. He has exalted him and seated him in the place of prominence. Notice in the heavenly places, more specifics, more description of his comprehensive exaltation. 21, far above all rule. He's not just a little more powerful than the kings of the earth. He's not just a little bit greater than William the Conqueror or Napoleon or their like. He's far above. He's super exalted. And he's far above all rule. There's no rule that he submits to. So I, I love the, 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 the verse in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. He's above all. He's over all. Again, you think about how this changes your life. There is a Lord above all other lords. King of kings. One exalted highly by God. If God's exalted him, you should recognize him for who he is. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Just in case you might be confused. It's all rule. It's all authority. It's all power. And it's all dominion. Now those last two words, power and dominion, have, I think, a specific meaning, especially in Ephesus, especially in the book of Ephesians and in Christianity. Power and dominion here is referring to demonic powers, the powers of demons. The demons are real, and they are powerful. Do you understand? You have supernatural foes that are operative and invisible and at work, and you'd be wise to recognize that. Just look at a few references in Ephesians. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's a, the power of the air. Jesus is far above him. Chapter 3 and verse 10. So that through the manifold... I'm sorry, so that through the church, the manifold witness of God, wisdom of God, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Chapter 6 and verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. Christians wrestle against that. But Christians begin by knowing Jesus is higher than them. Jesus is exalted far above them. Incidentally, how does a Christian respond 
to the reality of demons? How do Christians interact with this reality? How do we interact with demons? Because you have all sorts of bizarre and science fiction type views of demons. Christians don't have authority over demons. Jesus does. That's part of the point of this passage. Well, if you wanted to read in Ephesians 6, you, you can read there about putting on the whole armor of God so you'll be equipped for this kind of battle. And guess what the armor of God is? It's truth. Truth. It's righteousness, living out a righteous life. You want to you be victorious in combat against demons? Live out righteousness. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's the helm of salvation. You want to have victory over demons? Be saved. Every saved person has victory over demons. There's not some like weird magic or spell or words you have to use to deal with them. It's not something mystical or bizarre or, again, science fiction like that. Don't get your idea about demons from Hollywood. Get it from the Bible. But Jesus Christ is over them. He's enthroned over evil. Evil was operative and powerful in our world, but Jesus is enthroned over them. He's exalted over all of them, far above, verse 21, above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's not only enthroned now, he's going to be enthroned forever. There's not ever going to be a time when Jesus is not ruling this is why life will never work or make sense until you submit yourself to Jesus Christ. Because God exalted him. God exalted him. He's over all. Look at what it says next about him. Not only, not only does God demonstrate his power, not only do, should we know and recognize the power of God at work in the resurrection of Jesus and in the exaltation of Jesus, but we should also know the power of God in the sovereignty of Jesus. What he says next, verse 22. He put all things under his feet. All things under his feet. This again is a reference to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, verse 3. It's not verse 3. It's verse 6. Psalm 8 and verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. The Old Testament looking forward to the coming of this king, this sovereign king, Jesus coming and proving that he is that king. Paul the apostle writing to the church reflecting back on here's who this king is and what God's done through him. Think about that statement and look at it there in verse 22. And he put all things under his feet. As if it's not enough to say that he's above all rules, powers, dominions, authorities. He's above every name. Oh, there's more. God submitted. God has brought under submission all things, everything under his feet. The whole earth will be full of his glory. He is the sovereign Lord. Friends, this is why Jesus must not be merely a convenience in your life. Because everything's submitted to him. That's the reality. And again, the prayer here is as a Christian, you'll recognize this. Everything's submitted to him. It can and should change your life. One of the ways it can and should change your life is, is to recognize Jesus as the core commitment of my life. Not merely treating him or thinking of him as a convenience. 
No, Jesus is far more important than that. And friends, this is the sad reality that there are a lot of people that claim the name of Jesus Christ and are waffling in their commitment to him in a million ways, tempted by the world and by the flesh, waffling in their commitment to the one to whom everything is submitted. Don't waffle in your commitment to Jesus. The world and its black tendrils extend to choke you and hold you back. Everything is submitted to Jesus. You submit to him. You depend on him. You live for him. He's not an option. He's not a convenience. He's Lord. Friends, one of the realities of Scripture is that all of us will give an account to him. All of us will give an account to him. And this is why we want to make sure that we're trusting him as Lord Trusting him, depending on him to forgive our sins. Because in our sins, we're condemned already before a holy God. But in Christ, in Christ, God has submitted all things to him. And again, keep in mind, this power that God has submitted all things to Christ is at work in your life. Amazing. You ever wonder, how am I going to make it through life? How am I going to get through today? This power is at work in you. There's one last thing here that demonstrates the power of God in and through Jesus Christ that's operative in your life. This is according to this kind of power, we want you to know that this is at work in your life. Put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. A lot of all things in this passage. God gave him as head. The word head is just another way the Bible refers to the one who has supreme authority. You think about the analogy of head in your life, in your body. Your head is what controls your body. Your body is controlled by your mind. What would you be without your head? You'd be dead. The head gives life to the body. The head leads the body. The head is the source of thinking in life. Jesus is head of the church. Why? God's design. God made him head of the church. So always keep in mind and remember, no man is head of the church. Only the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head of the church, and that's by God's authority and God's direction. Because this is why one of the this is one of the reasons so many of the views of the world about Jesus are so woefully insufficient. Woefully insufficient. You listen to a lot of people, or maybe you watch TV, and you'll see Jesus presented as maybe, yeah, he's a teacher who has some good things to say. Or maybe you, if, you listen, if you study Islam, you find the, the, the Muslim view of Jesus is he's one prophet among many. He's a prophet. He speaks for God. Friends, he's so much more than that. He's head over all. God made him head over the church. Notice the church, which is his body, that's us. We're the body of Christ. The fullness of him. Now think about that. The church is the fullness of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, is a groom complete without his bride? If you just see a groom standing out there, no, there's a bride and a groom. In this analogy, Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. What about a tree without branches? What do the branches do for a tree? They, they fill it. Or a shepherd with no sheep, wouldn't that be incomplete in a picture? 
or a body without a head. This makes no sense. Jesus, who's head of the church, notice, the church is the fullness of him. Jesus, who bodily and physically is not on earth anymore, his church is. His church is. And the church is the expression, the fullness of Jesus Christ on earth. And notice the church, the fullness of him, Jesus, who fills all in all. Every, every person who's a believer, part of the church, filled by Jesus Christ. Now, a few final thoughts about that. Number one, I hope just from that you can see the importance of the church. This is the first time in the book of Ephesians the church is mentioned. But actually, the idea of the church is going to be one of the, the main ideas of this little letter. And, the, and what the church is. And friends, how important the church is. Notice what this says about Jesus. He's the head of the church. Would you ever treat your head as just unimportant? No, you probably look at it every day in the mirror. Or, or what would a body be with, without the, a hand? What if your arm or your foot were severed? That would be a handicap, wouldn't it? Or, or what, if, what if the body wanted to rebel against the head? That absolutely makes no sense, does it? The heart just decides one day, brain, I'm mad at you. I'm going to stop working. Die. Well, friends, I hope you can see the importance of the church in this imagery where Jesus is the head and, he, and he, the fullness of him. The body is the fullness of him on earth who fills all in all. The point here is, friends, <laughs> don't treat the head as optional. Don't treat the body as optional. They're both essential. They're both essential. There's no idea of the Christian life apart from the body. It makes no more sense than a disembodied leg to be a Christian apart from the body. Knowing God's picture and God's purposes, there's the head, who's Jesus, and then there's the body, who is his church, his visible body on earth, which, yes, is absolutely and always will be in this life imperfect. But, friends, this is God's design. This is not some person's idea about what you should have in your life. God exalted Jesus as head over his body, the church. Friends, the church, you should view the church as indispensable in your Christian life. You should view Jesus as utterly indispensable in your Christian life. And friends, this is why you need Jesus, and in God's plan, you need the church. This is his purpose and his plan. This is why it's so sad when people are complacent in their attitude toward the church, his body. His body is his fullness on earth. Would, would, you, would you be... Would you treat as secondary the, the fullness of Jesus Christ? Of course not. Friends, recognize the importance of his body. So, also, last point. <clears throat> what do Christians really need? What do Christians really need? Because I think Christians need to recognize the power of God in Jesus Christ. This is Paul's heart in this prayer. What is Paul praying for the church? That these Christians, would, their eyes would be open to the power of God toward them who believe 
operative, explained, demonstrated according to these four ways, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. You should know that's the power of God operative, energizing your life. That you would know that God has highly exalted him above everything. That'll change the way you make decisions and plan your day and plan your life and plan your family. Jesus is high above every name. And God has submitted all things to him. Won't that affect the way you submit to him? Life's not about planning my own course or charting my own way. It's submitting to Jesus Christ and finding my place in following him. And then recognizing God has made him head of the church. His body, which is his fullness. He who fills all in all. See, I think Christians need to know that. This is Paul's heart that Christians would know and understand these amazing truths about the power of God in your life. You're not without power. You just take the first two. Raising Jesus from the dead, exalting Jesus over dominions and powers, demons. These are two things you have no power over. You have no power over your death. Now, you might be able to postpone it for a while, and many of us will, but it's coming for you. You will not escape death in this life. Jesus is the one who was raised from the dead, and he has power over it. And those who believe in him have life. You think about demons. You have no power over a demon. Jesus does. Only Jesus and through him can you win or wrestle with the spiritual powers of darkness. See how incapable we are and how powerful he is? That's what Paul wants Christians to know. And that's why the, the realities of life hit us all. And life is challenging for all of us. But we don't just need to come and hear 10 tips for your marriage, which all of us might need. We need to hear about the power of God at work in Jesus Christ. And thank God for that. Let's pray together. God, I do pray we would know these things. Your work, your power at work, operative, energizing our life. You demonstrated in raising Jesus from the dead. You demonstrated in exalting him high above all. So God, help us to recognize him as that and respond in kind. You demonstrated your power, Lord, in submitting all things to him and giving him his head of the church, which is his fullness. So God, help us to submit ourselves. Lord, we wouldn't just call Jesus Lord, Lord, but Lord, we would do what you say. We'd regard you rightly as Lord and high king over all, to one, the one to whom we will all give an account. And God, therefore, we would approach you with repentance and humility, not with high-mindedness high or pride. Lord, we just pray you'd have mercy on us sinners. Forgive us of our sins and help us today to submit our life, our plans, our will, to you, to do what you say, to hear your words and do it, to hear your word and keep it. And God, I just pray we'd do this in your power and we'd recognize this great power at work in us. Thank you for Jesus and his glory. Help us to sing praises to him now. It's in his name we pray, amen. Let's stand together, friends. The call is always to, to believe the gospel. That message which is of first importance that Jesus died on the cross for our sins was raised again from the dead. This is what God has done to, to make his people. That we become the people of God. We come out of darkness into light through trusting Jesus alone. Nothing I could do or have done. 
but only because we're on the basis of Jesus' work by God's grace. So we look and trust in God to, to bring us from death to life, and we trust Jesus to bring us to God. So you should turn from your sins today, which will ultimately condemn you before a holy God, and turn to Jesus Christ and ask him for forgiveness. And the good news is he's merciful. He forgives. He's kind. He gives you an inheritance like Ephesians 1 describes.